what I'm going to talk about today is kind of a stringing together of thoughts that I've put um, separately in a lot of stuff, most of it um, kind of public facing work around the nature of the compound crisis that we're facing today. So the crisis that's being stitched together out of the ongoing climate crisis, the more recent pandemic, and I'm about to argue the kind of political ramifications of those um, impacts stemming in some way from the natural world. And so what I'm trying to say is why I've taken such a strongly political perspective of those kinds of crisis, what that political perspective is and how all these thoughts sync together. So first, the compound part of the problem. So earlier this year, in the early months of the pandemic, scientists released this graph showing um, all of the separate ecological crises that were going to be compounded by both the pandemic itself and uh, I think more importantly, the kind of social and political ramifications of that pandemic and our various responses to it. That included um, the wildfires, that included hurricanes, that included the ongoing locust crisis uh, across Yemen and East Africa. And many of these are things by this point in the year that we've actually seen interact with um, the COVID pandemic. What I want to talk about today, what I want to, um, the perspective that I want to share is that we should be thinking about these crises um, as of course, starting with viruses, as starting with sea level rise, but as actually determined largely by our political system and not primarily by our sort of ecological system or our atmosphere or what the sea or the bacteria or the viruses are doing, but what we're doing as people, as a society. And so in the following, uh, and I'm going to do my best to be um, quick and concise because I uh, much prefer to talk with you all, but in the following, I'm gonna say what the basic framework is I'm using to think about these crises from a political perspective. I'm gonna talk about the crises themselves from that perspective. And then I'm gonna move on to what I hope are um, less theoretical and more practical kinds of ways of thinking about these things. So what is it that we should want out of our political response to these crises? And what is it that we need to do to get our political and social systems to actually act in that way? So first, the framework. So why do I use the term racial capitalism and what does that show us? Um, what does that explain, if anything? So the popularity of the term racial capitalism is often attributed to the thinker you see on the left part of your screen, Cedric Robinson, um, a political thinker who popularized the term in a book called Black Marxism. And it's a global perspective on what our society is like. So um, countries are important, but we have this way of relating to each other 
in particular, um, a way of organizing our economic life that actually unites those of us um, across borders on the planet who participate in this economic system. And he characterized that as racial capitalism. And the rough idea is that the European conquests of much of the world that um, brought the world under this economic system spread three different things which are related to each other but not the same as each other. So first it spread a mode of production which is often um, just talked about by itself which is simply capitalism. It's a way of producing things. It um, proliferated a form of social organization which helps keep us in that mode of production and it prolifer proliferated ideologies. So ways of thinking about both of the aforementioned things and um, ways of justifying those things for those of us who like how the system works. And I take it, um, this isn't Robinson's claim, but this is my claim. I think you should think about one through three is roughly an order of um, importance. So if we wanted to take this out for a spin, we could um, use these categories in the following way. So suppose we were trying to um, explain the system of trade that linked the Southern United States with um, England, with India that developed in the early 1800s before the US Civil War. Well, that was a plantation system organized around um, so-called King Cotton. And you could have described that in the following way. You could have said, well, what is it? It's a system of production, right? So it revolves around the production of cotton. The way that society is organized, not just production, but all of society is organized is in a slave system. So there's racial slavery in the US South. And that explains how the cotton gets produced and how the mills making textiles in England um, get the cotton and convert it into um, final goods to sell in India and Africa. Um, and how did they justify that? Well, obviously they justified racial slavery by white supremacy. So that's just a way of stitching together what all these things have to do with each other. More recently, um, the geographer and abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore offered a definition of racism that I think is importantly related to all the things that I just said. She defines racism as the state sanctioned and or extra legal production and exploitation of group differentiated vulnerability to premature death. So that's a mouthful, what does that mean? Well, first of all, I think when we see group differentiated vulnerability, we should think essentially races, right? Um, different races are differently vulnerable to different kinds of um, calamity and different levels of security in the social system that we have. And the races towards the bottom of the racial hierarchy are the most vulnerable and the races towards the top are the least vulnerable. And that fact is itself produced by some people, some of whom are in the state and some of whom aren't. And it's exploited by some people, some of whom are in the state and some of whom aren't. That's, what I take her to be saying. And she happened to be using it to explain the expansions of prisons in California, which is the most populous state of the United States. But 
she was defining racism. She was defining something more broad that could be applied elsewhere. So why does it matter that under the idea of racial capitalism, or at least as I'm explaining it, why does it matter that uh, what's happening is not just an economic system, but as a whole social system? One way of explaining why it matters um, harkens back to the definition we just got from Gilmore. So production and you know what some people call reproduction or just producing again, the ability to produce again, those are processes that are extended, right? They're extended across time, they're extended across space, they're extended across people. So each person doing their part of the social system has to trust that the rest of the social system is gonna keep doing what it's doing. That is, and that trust helps them make sense of what they're contributing to the system and helps explain why they keep doing it, right? So we should understand security in this sense as being part and parcel of racial capitalism. And the reason why we have to take a wider view rather than just an economic view of what's important and what contributes to capitalism. Racial domination of enslaved people and indigenous people helped secure the whole social order, the whole society on which profit-making plantations depended. What, what it took to dominate enslaved and indigenous peoples was a whole system of social policing, a whole system of violence, a whole system that makes some people safe and makes other people unsafe. So the settler militias made settlers safe and indigenous peoples unsafe. The slave patrols made enslaved people unsafe and made the, um, the so-called slave owners safe. Um, what this social role does, what this violence does and what this distribution of security does is make it possible to have the entire society, the settler society, on which profit making depends. So there's something basic, there's something um, constitutive of society under racial capitalism that depends on this distribution, that depends on who's made safe and what is made safe. So that's very abstract. What does that have to do with things on the ground? What does that have to do with actual reality? And more importantly, what does that have to do with what we came here to talk about, which is compound crisis, the intersection of climate crisis and pandemics and all the other things that are happening. I think one way to make quick sense of why this distinction matters is to look at an extreme kind of insecurity. Um, there's few better examples than famines. That's that premature death that Ruth Gilmore was talking about. So there are two ways that you could explain famines. Um, of course, more than two ways, but here are two ways that economists and other social scientists have often tried to explain famines. One way, which you might think is intuitive, is to explain famines based on what's happening with the crops and the natural world. So that's what's on the left called the food availability declined approach. So you might think famines are what happens when there isn't enough food to feed people. And um, famous economists have often given explanations of famines in this way. But Amartya Sen, Nobel Prize winning Indian economist, studied famines, especially famines in recent centuries, 
and found that there's actually another way that you can explain famines, a way that does better. And that is a political approach. He calls it the entitlement approach. I'm just going to call it political because I think it's a bit less confusing. He's using the word entitlement a little bit of a different way than you might normally use it. On the political approach, famines happen when we fail to, when our distribution systems fail to secure vulnerable people with respect to their access to food, right? So what's different about these two approaches is that the left is approach, the food availability decline is talking about something that's happened to food. And the right is talking about something that's happened to our political system and our distribution system. A case study of this is the Great Bengal Famine of 1943, which Sen talks about. Almost 3 million people died in this famine, and it was blamed on low rainfall. But actually studying it carefully, Sen found that food availability was unchanged. Um, and more recently, Indian scientists, social scientists found that rainfall actually increased during this period. Moreover, they found that after India became a democracy, during this time, it was a um, colony of the British Empire. There were never famines of this kind again, even though it was still true that there were variations in rainfall. Sometimes it rained a lot, sometimes it rained a little. The conclusion Sen makes is that British colonial economic policies caused the famine. So that's a way of wheeling out these two approaches and seeing which one does better. The one on the right, the political option, is a better fit for a lot of, for actually the majority of famines. Um, it's the distribution systems. It's the way that our political systems respond. Because the British Empire did not um, cared more about its war effort, 1943 was during the Second World War, than it cared about protecting um, vulnerable Indian people in the Bengal region from starvation. It defended its own interests rather than defending the people who were vulnerable. And that's the sort of thing that's going to be decisive in the compound crisis we face today and in the coming century, in the coming rest of the century. So what are the crises that we face starting from um, today and including the kind of framework that I've just spent some time explaining? One of them is famine, right? So we could just ask a similar kind of question that Sen asked about climate crisis and the various things that will interact with climate crisis. Is the problem ecological? Is the danger of climate crisis what our natural systems going to, are going to do, what the sea level is going to do, what the hurricanes are going to do? Or is the danger of climate change based on how our distributions respond, based on what and whom we decide to protect? Obviously, um, I'm, I've been suggesting just now through engagement with Sen that we should think it's door number two. The political approach explains what the dangers are. It's no accident that I used famine as an example because famine is the current stakes of global policies on who and what we protect. Uh, and I'm going to um, just note that the UN has 
um, had projected early on that 130 million people would be pushed to the brink of starvation and that across three dozen countries, um, food insecurity was going to massively increase. Um, and UN officials called this um, famines of biblical proportions. And these are the kinds of situations that we will be likelier to be in more often as climate crisis accelerates. But it's not just famines, it's not just food security. There's also the political issue of migration. Um, the history of migration in brief, um, the international refugee regime, which is relevant to the larger question of migration, was established in the aftermath of the Second World War when refugees, when refugee flows from non-European countries increased in the second half of the 20th centuries, Western powers abandoned their previous policy of resettling migrants and refugee camps proliferated. These were sold as temporary ways to rescue refugees and sustain them um, pending their eventual decision to, to return home, uh, but actually served to shield um, different states, including Western states, um, and perhaps most problematically Western states, from the political and social effects of large-scale migration. Nowadays, um, one in every hundred of the world's, of, of the people of the world live more or less permanently outside the nation-state system, and less than 1% of refugees worldwide are ever resettled. Instead, they are often warehoused. That's the status quo. What happens under the conditions of climate crisis that we're on schedule to, that are likely to happen if we don't get our act together? The World Bank reports that without urgent and global, without urgent global and national climate action, Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia and Latin America could see more than 140 million people move within their country's borders by 2050. Um, and a combined New York Times and ProPublica investigation um, found that tens of millions of people could be displaced across borders. So again, what is the danger here? So the, what's drawing people to move are, in this case, for the purposes of this discussion, inclusive of what the climate is doing, which places are harder to live in because of changes in the climate. But that needn't be a danger in and of itself, right? That could be, um, that could be a neutral fact about what is going to happen. Um, or at least more neutral than it could be under worse circumstances. But if we take the same political approach, we can see that the danger climate crisis presents and climate-based displacement presents is based on how our political systems respond to movement. If we respond with nationalism and xenophobia, then this is a different kind of problem than if we don't. And there's good reason to think that this is the proper approach for explaining the problems here. Um, I'm going to briefly talk about um, a sort of general perspective that we could have about the problems of climate crisis and um, 
the compound crisis, which is apartheid and colonialism. So we could expect social divisions to arise um, and existing social divisions to intensify within countries and communities, which more or less um, corresponds to the climate apartheid thought, and also across them. Um, so differences in nations and indigenous communities, um, indigenous nations dealing with climate crisis could be decisive of global balances of power and difference in individual people and families' ability to manage the problems caused by climate crisis could be decisive of um, within countries, within community balances of power. Um, the latter would be apartheid and the former colonialism. I'm also going to skip these because what I wanna talk about for the remainder of the time is these last two categories. So what is it that we should want given what we've seen is at stake? And what is it that we should do given the likely ability of our political systems, of our communities to challenge our political systems? The broad perspective I take on this um, is one that is inspired by the anti-colonial activists of the 50s and 60s who are responsible for um, ending formal colonial domination, at least on the scale that it was throughout much of um, recent centuries in their um, various struggles for national independence after the Second World War. And the political perspective that a lot of these people had is one that Getschu describes as world making. So it's not just opposition to the ongoing political order, um, but actually an attempt to build a new thing, attempt to build a new system that functions in a just way. I think this is gonna take some particular heavy lifting with respect to immigration justice. Um, the status quo is um, expensive, not to mention immoral and there are better ways that we can handle these sorts of problems. Um, it would involve a return to resettlement policies. It would um, require greatly liberalized, if not open borders, particularly um, from migration from the global south to the global north. But there's a lot of heavy lifting to go there. I think it would also involve um, a broad redistribution of power from large corporations, um, states, and large elite-driven and elite-captured multinational institutions. And it would involve meaningful control at lower levels of political organization. And here, um, a tactic with deep roots in Black freedom movements, as um, Audrey Lim describes, um, called roughly community control, is something to think about as a broad ethos, as solutions to kick around. How systems work are importantly about distributions of resources. So who has the money, who has the infrastructure, who has the research capacity, but also of power in a more straightforward sense. Who gets to decide what gets done with the resources that a country has, for example? Who's in the room when the laws are passed and the regulations are overseen? 
those kinds of questions about power are often decisive for the reasons that we already saw in Amartya Sen's work on famines and that we should draw from more, draw from more generally. Accordingly, um, in black history, especially in the United States, there's been a long history of agitation um, in um, black communities for community control. For example, the Black Panther Party agitated for community control over police. Um, and nowadays groups like Black Lives Matter Chicago in the United States and the National Alliance Against Racist Police Repression continue to do so. There's been agitation for community control over land, including um, a multiracial farming cooperative called New Communities, which um, was an early version of what got called community land trusts, where the land is controlled and directed by the community. And these are the sorts of things power-wise that we should start thinking about as we think about the kinds of climate actions that are going to be effective in responding to um, compound crisis in the context of racial capitalism. So racial capitalism tends to make people at the bottom of the racial distribution um, insecure for the benefit of those at the top. What are effective responses to that? Perhaps community control is something to think about. So those are things we should want. Um, in the time remaining to me, I wanna talk a little bit about what we should do and just um, give a survey of a few things, a few concrete things that people have talked about and advocated for and some reasons to think that these might be good ideas and that these might alter our distributive system in ways that protect the safety of everybody and not just the people at the top of racial hierarchies and the people at the top of class hierarchies, which are very strongly interrelated. So I think the first thing to address is kind of the elephant in the room. Given the scale of these crises, should we even think that we can do something about this? I think we should think so. And I don't think we, I don't think our only recourse is to talk in general terms about hope or what's bad about pessimism. Um, I think those are good things to keep in mind. But also if we just think about how it is that our social systems work, um, we might be, we might take the possibility of quick and meaningful change um, more seriously. So some social scientists have talked about what they call tipping points. Um, in one example, they talk about how the writings of one man, Martin Luther, the 95 Theses, if you've heard of those, triggered the worldwide establishment of Protestant churches. That's an example of tipping points, which in general are points in a social system at which small changes in one factor can sort of overnight, as it were, change the whole basis of the whole social system. It might be a little far to suggest that that's what's happened with fossil fuel divestment, but we should notice how quickly things have changed with respect to the financial position of fossil fuel companies if we you know, want to take this kind of change a bit more seriously. In 2014, investors with 
um, a mere 52 billion in assets had agreed to shed fossil fuel holdings. Now that group represents more than 11 trillion. Um, so many, many, many times over the amount of assets behind um, divestment um, from fossil fuel holdings. And so, you know, we needn't think that these people are doing this out of the goodness of their hearts, but we should think nevertheless that this represents a significant difference in how our social system is working. So we can make a difference, right? There are things we can do. There are meaningful ways that we can change what our social system is up to and challenge what our social system is up to. What are some of those ways? Uh, so first, I'm gonna talk about a couple of things that people have suggested that might um, work to reshuffle power in a way that would help with the compound crisis within the kind of state system. So within states or countries, within multinational institutions. One approach is called participatory budgeting. So participatory budgeting is more or less what it sounds like. It brings public funds under public control. Um, so an early, perhaps the first version of this, at least under this name, was piloted in Porto Alegre, Brazil, um, by local parts of the Workers' Party there. It's a good thing for a number of reasons. It brings things under democratic control, brings state resources um, that are taken from communities via taxation under community control. It can enfranchise marginalized community members by involving all residents without regard to citizenship or ability to lobby politicians. So it can um, answer the question of how we decide what to protect and who to protect by community power rather than our elite driven political systems. It's not magic, um, it's still gameable. Right. Um, so if there's low investment in making the participatory budgeting work, for example, by not funding research budgets to help people understand the ramifications of different decisions they can make, um, or if the amount of money that the community is allowed to control is too small, then both of those things can make participatory budgeting more symbolic than meaningful. Also the overall political ecology matters, right? So there were strong community organizations in Porto Alegre and that's one reason why it was such an important result and why it was such an important part of local politics. Um, but in places that don't have that kind of strong community organization, the results that you get from participatory budgeting might be meaningfully different. Nevertheless, it's something to think about, something to push for. We might also think about community control over power. So putting public utilities under popular control, which um, people writing in the publication in these times described as the most promising path towards equity, democracy, and renewable energy. A big impetus for this demand um, for thinking about this kind of option comes from contrast with the status quo, which is um, under which many places have utilities provided by investor-owned companies. 
which center profit and externalize environmental costs by dumping pollution on marginalized communities. The profit that they gain from dumping this pollution often turns into political power and influence via lobbying. For example, Dominion Energy in Virginia is um, by far the biggest campaign contributor to politicians there. Um, and also tactical philanthropy allows them to manipulate public opinion about what they're doing. So if the only time people see the name of um, investor-owned utilities companies is in the after-school program that they run, but no one ever investigates their pollution, then that can help them cement political power and also help them keep power over utilities themselves. That political power and influence can turn into poor climate outcomes as they pressure the politicians they've essentially bought to um, either prevent green energy policy or green climate policy in general entirely or to dilute the effects of whatever green policies pass, whether we're talking about um, local legislation or country level legislation. So the idea is that community ownership of power would um, help shift power away from investing investor owned utility centers. So those are things sort of within the existing kind of formal political system. What can we do outside of it? What might address compound crisis? One thing that I'm particularly thinking about these days is an approach to worker bargaining called bargaining for the common good. This is an approach that describes um, when organized labor, so workers unions involve community members and organizing and organizations, um, both to come up with demands that they're going to bargain for in their contract negotiation and any potential strikes that may happen, and also help and also band together in the campaign to win those demands. Um, so if there were a strike, for example, you might see community members that aren't in the union on the picket lines. There's a long US labor history of bargaining for things other than wages and benefits. Um, for example, the um, famous May 1st um, labor agitations that won the eight hour workday. Um, the 1965 strike by social workers for the treatment of the people that they worked with. So working class, low income people in New York City helped um, incentivize the labor laws that functionally outlawed this kind of approach to bargaining. Um, but nevertheless, recent um, unions have adopted the bargaining for the common good ethos and tactics. So the Chicago Teachers Union um, struck in support of not just wages and benefits for their members, but also for the treatment of their students, particularly homeless students in the second of those strikes. And a Minnesota SEIU local um, struck for better, um, better sick pay, better sexual harassment policies, and also for climate conscious demands and greener cleaning materials. So these are things that can, so 
these are things that can challenge the social system beyond just one group of workers, wages and benefits, but can challenge broader social structures and build the kind of power that would be necessary to combat the compound crisis. So with that, I'm looking forward to talking with you all. Thank you.